Well, I invite your uh, attention to the Word of God as found in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Hear the Word of the Lord. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There are countless religions in the world that promote morality as the way to God, that we, uh, we need to be good people, and uh, God will uh, accept a measure of our goodness, and again, simply the promotion of of morality, and of course morality is a very good thing, uh, to be sure, uh, but it will fail before God because our fallen nature governs our conduct, and the law demands perfection, so it catches everyone. The best of moral men is caught. And the best of moral men, by the way, is the Apostle Paul, uh, before he came to Christ. He was a very religious man. Uh, we could use words like, he was a rising star. Um, the religion of Israel and the morality of the first century Israel, uh, he, I mean, he was a rock star advancing the morality of the synagogues, doing the will of the, of the high priest. And then the law catches him with its demand, again, as I stated earlier, for perfection. And life under the law for the Apostle Paul intensified uh, the principle of indwelling sin. Intensifies, if you will, uh, this very religious man's sense of his sinfulness. It also taught him that the law was unable to cure his fallenness, meaning that there is only deliverance in Christ. 
And so the confession this morning, uh, autobiographical statement from Paul, is that of a religious man who uh, comes to understand the reason for the law of God, and that it turns him to Christ, and the law of God does just that. It turns him to Christ. Uh, Paul begins by establishing that uh, uh, God's law is uh, spiritual and good, as well as affirming that it's unable to save. Uh, the law exposes his utter failure and utter wanting of a cure, because the law never gives a cure. That's why morality, while it's a wonderful thing in our civil society, has no standing before God, because it cannot cure our eternal liability. Paul, Paul is the premier example of that. The law has a role, as we learned last week in this uh, biographical statement of, of uh, convicting us, uh, its representation of the holiness and perfections of God, which do what? Establish the need for the gospel. Pure essence of the law. You read it, it catches you, it snags you, it causes you to realize if you truly understand it, the need for a savior. That's Paul's autobiographical testimony and a very compressed statement. So this is the account of Paul's spiritual struggle and the defeat of a religious man outside of Christ and the beauty of the divine provision in the answer for the failed morality of the Apostle Paul, as great as he was, in terms of mankind. Verses 14 to 23, the law exposes his inner struggle with sin as a very religious man. Uh, Paul begins by describing himself in uh, verse 14 as a man of the flesh sold into the bondage of sin. The word bondage, of course, is used of that of the relationship between a slave and his master. And the master here is sin. It's really the failure of religion. It promotes a lot of morality, but fails to recognize that uh, it too is under the dominion of sin. Sin is its master. It's a very cruel master, by the way. A Christian says, you know, have the capacity to sin, but this expression speaks to captivity. Paul is in captive to sin. He's in bondage to it. The dominion establishes the tension between what he wants to do and what he does, he despises. The interplay between willing and doing is the struggle of a man giving it his all. A very religious man giving it his all, but failing. And the law reminds him of that failure. That's what the law does. It shows a man even the best of men for what he is before God. Not before men. That's religion before God. Religious men forget that. They think they 
do good and they're accepted before men, and they are, and perhaps are to be applauded for whatever reason, not accepted before the court of heaven. Because God is perfect, and the law reminds us of his perfections. Uh, I think another great example of that is the great historic figure, Martin Luther. Uh, Luther once said that he had recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the demands of his tortured conscience. Remind you that Luther was an Augustinian monk. He gave himself wholeheartedly to religion, but it did not stifle his tortured conscience. He denied himself, he sacrificed himself. The law continually exposed him for what he was. And he was plagued by the question. I think it's the, one of the greatest questions of all of life for the religious man. This was, this was Luther's question that tortured him. Have I done enough? Think about that. Have I done enough? When God is perfect, you cannot do enough. So Luther passed his life in a continual struggle until his eyes were opened by God. And you know, it was in this book, the book of Romans, where God opened his eyes that the righteous man shall live by faith. And like Luther, the law catches Paul in its demands for perfection and accusations of imperfection and failure. Again, the law has an accusatorial role, like a prosecuting attorney. So the problem is not the law. Paul is establishing that law is holy and good. It's, it's sin dwelling with him and him. Let's look at verse 17. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Now, the word indwelling comes, comes obviously from a noun for house. Uh, it means that sin has moved into his house and dwells within him. And so it amplifies in the life of Paul the struggle between willing and doing, verses 18 to 20. In my own mind, this autobiographical statement is the testimony of a man outside of Christ. Just simply imperiled by the law in a tortured conscience. And all of his religious acts could not atone for sin that was resident in his life. Again, sin had moved in and taken up residence. Again, it's the psychology of the theology of the fall of Adam. But the psychology is Paul's testimony of a religious man. I think one of the best of religious men. Giving it his all and yet failing. Uh, besides sin dwelling within him, verse 21, he says, the principle of evil that is present in me. In other words, sin and enemy has invaded his heart. Very well known for uh, Presbyterians who know their history, a very well known theologian, 
by the name of Thornwell. He, Thornwell describes sin in a very graphic way. Let me read his definition to you. Uh, speaking of the religious man, or every man outside of Christ for that matter, because most men want to do good, think they can gain acceptance before God with their works, but here's what Thornwell says. Sin is the law of his temporal existence. It is his nature in the same sense in which ferocity is the nature of the tiger, cunning the nature of the serpent, and coarseness the nature of the swan. What Thornwell is simply describing is man in his fallen nature. What Paul is describing is his tortured conscience of a religious man, wanting but being unable. The outcome is also described in the language of warfare. Again, remind you, this is a very religious man. Sin lives in it, within him. Evil is present within him. Let's turn it on another nature in the language of warfare, verse 23. I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind or what he wants to do and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. The principle of indwelling sin makes war against the law of his mind, what he wants to do. But he's unable to do it perfectly. Again, think of the book of Acts. Paul was railed, received by the Sanhedrin, he was a rising star in the synagogues. He thought by persecuting the church, he was doing good works before God. But the law catches him, reminds him that he has a fallen nature, and it attacks his desires, controls his desires. Uh, the, uh, the verbal adjective, it's a compound form, the waging war, uh, the verb against and the verb to do battle. So he has this intense struggle within him. From the latter that we have the English word for strategy. Uh, if you will, the fallen nature has a strategic campaign against his mind, trained as a Pharisee. I mean, the Pharisees were the, the rock stars of uh, the religion of the day in Israel. Paul was one of the best of the best. But he comes to realize through the law of God that sin has taken residence in his heart. Uh, it's evil and it convicts his corrupt nature. And so he's being defeated. If you will, in terms of the language of warfare, Paul is outfought and outgunned in the battlefield of his heart where this raging battle is going on, Paul's heart, the inner man, if you will. He wants to do, I'm sure he tries, he gave it his best, but he fails again and again. I'm reminded of one of my favorite verses that in its own way caught me. Isaiah 64, verse 6, All our righteousness are as filthy rags before God. All of the Apostle Paul's marks as a religious man. Filthy before God. Not accepted at all. So Paul comes under this psychological defeat and distress. 
In the words of a preacher, religion sweeps away the cobwebs, but never kills the spider. Think about that. I'm always fighting uh, spiders here at the church. It's, I mean, it's like webs everywhere. I mean, what's the deal? So I get a broom, sweep them away. Spiders are always there. Never seem to get the spider. They always scuttle away. That's what religion does. Sweeps away the cobwebs, but never kills the spider. And The spider is always present in our heart. Uh, and as good as he was in the courts of men, Paul says, I was held captive by my nature, a prisoner in my own body. By application, Christians struggle with sin, to be sure. We're still fallen. But sin is no longer our master. It does not own us. The man outside of Christ, sin owns. It's his master. Not so for the Christian. We, we struggle with it, but not in the relationship as a master to slave. And Paul's failure is the failure of all men outside of Jesus Christ. And all of their attempts at self-atonement do not avail. That's really what religion is, self-atonement. Uh, I do some wrong, I'll go do some things right, and they'll cancel one another out. Maybe in society. Maybe in the courts of men, but not in the court of heaven or for God because of God's eternal perfection. Again, that is the importance of the law. If you read it, you understand it catches you every time because you're not perfect. You can try to be moral, but your morality will not solve the problem of an imperfect fallen man before the perfections of a totally righteous God who does not accept imperfection in any form in any degree. Tragically, in our culture, we don't think of God in that way. We thinking, think of him as just a good old boy upstairs and he winks at us when we... No, that's, that's the God created by the fallen mind of a fallen man. You read the scriptures, God is infinitely perfect. There is no shadow of turning in any way in him. There is not any degree imperfection in God. He is totally, throughout all time and eternity, perfect in every degree. And I would remind you that perfection does not brook imperfection. And we are anything but perfect. And that's the confession of a religious man named by the Apostle Paul. Simply as well, the perfections of per, profession of faith of Martin Luther. He had the recourse of all of Catholic religion of his day. He went to Rome. He crawled up on the steps on his knees. And yet he left as empty as he went. And that's the failure of a religious man. It's tragic that we don't study our history. We don't read of the professions of Luther, tortured in his conscience. But this comes from Holy Scripture. 
the Apostle Paul. There are some people who hold that this is a profession of, of a Christian man struggling with sin, but I don't think the language here really fits that because uh, I don't think that a Christian is under the bondage of sin. I certainly don't think a Christian would describe himself as a wretched man because of the work of Christ on his behalf. Uh, and this is Paul's collude conclusion of himself. He's a wretched man. We don't think in those terms. Because when we read the Bible, we, we come up with our own scorecard. Score we, we make our own rules. If we're accepted in society, that's good enough. God will accept us. God will wink it all away. Read the scriptures is totally otherwise. This is, this is Paul's conclusion of himself. Wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? The word wretched comes from the verb to do hard labor and suffer hardship with the idea that they break you. This is a man doing hard labor, uh, trying to uh, turn big rocks into little rocks, thinking that they will get him to heaven. Paul, Paul is caught in utter failure, so he describes himself as a wretched man. Again, where Scripture takes you. Not with the end state to leave you there, but to turn you to God's provision. Let's look at this word that's used uh, of a church. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 17. It's a testimony of Jesus about a church. Uh, let me say that again. The testimony of Jesus about a church, probably many churches. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In terms of the author of the book of Revelation, John, testimony of the church of Laodicea. It was an apostate church. Very religious church that thought that all of its works could atone before God and hear the testimony of Scripture is that none of them make atonement before God. I mean, look at the language again. Very pointed, very painful. You are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. I mean, think of what John says as well. Verse 18, advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I solve to anoint your eyes that you may see. According to Greg Beale, there was an industry there in Laodicea which produced a salve to help fix people with eye ailments. John says you're blind. Get healing from me, Christ. What a tragic and yet uh, beautiful picture, if you will, of religion that writes its own scorecard, that thinks it's 
It's accepted before God. It's done a lot of good work. It's done a lot of good things. And yet, they fail to read the law that makes them out for what they truly are, wretched. Wretched. Now, I would remind you that texts like this destroy self-atonement by works. Very quickly, I'm not against good works. The Bible extols good works. But not as the cause of salvation. As the effect of salvation. There's only one cause of salvation. And that is the work of Jesus Christ. Only His works are acceptable before the court of heaven. Only His works are perfect. Only His atonement is acceptable before God. It's the failure of religion, self-atonement, that God doesn't accept. Simply read the Scriptures. And of course, we don't read the Scriptures. We read everything but the Scriptures. We make our own scorecard. Scriptures do not permit you to do that. You neglect them at your peril. Verses 24 to 25, the law unable to save turns Paul to the divine provision. He cries out in acknowledgement that his works cannot rescue him. His works can fail. So who can deliver him? If doing the best that I can do fails, then who can do for me? The answer is only God can deliver from sin and death that's exposed by the law. And so Paul's answer is what? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the divine provision. Human works, vice, divine works. The works of Christ upon the cross. His active and passive obedience. The entirety of that which can make satisfaction for sin. That's why Paul cries out in thanksgiving. The law has now turned him to the divine provision. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ subjected himself to the law throughout his entire earthly life. He obeyed it totally and perfectly. It never found the slightest defect in either his actions or his heart. And that's the greatest battleground. The heart. The heart. That's where men fail. As the God-man, Christ did not fail ever in his heart. The religious world and the forces of darkness strategized against him. They waged violent war against him. The religious world took him to court got him condemned, thought they were finished with him in the crucifixion, but they lost because he conquered death. He became sin for his people. And since the wages of sin is death, he died. So he defeated death and broke its power, broke the power of the law its accusatorial role against us. 
For the Christian, the law no longer accuses us. It accuses the religious man, the man outside of Jesus Christ. It does not accuse us. Why is that? Because he solitarily, uniquely, and solely met the demands of the law for us. Essence of the gospel. We could not pay. He paid. We could not satisfy the demands of God. He could. He did. And so we are set free from the bondage of sin and guilt. And as God, the grave could not hold him. What's the outcome for us? Let's turn to, you have your, have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Christ delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. He's delivered us from the law of sin and guilt. He will deliver us from the grave. If he will, two phases in our salvation. Phase one, spiritual salvation. Phase two, the salvation of our bodies when he comes to resurrect our bodies from the grave. He accomplished it all. He is our deliverer, both now and forever. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's our, that's our deliverance. We lived in the dominion of darkness. It owned us. It was our master. He delivered us. He set us free. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The grace of God, God the Father, and the gift of God the Son. Infinite perfection, rendering a sacrifice of infinite value so that we can be free. We live in a different country the kingdom of his beloved son. The gospel. The victor. The victor of sin and death is Christ, the captain of our salvation, who has forged the way, who was first, and he was leading many sons to glory. Firstborn from the dead. In the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews, leading many sons to glory. Those who believe and have hope in him. Set their religion aside for the work of Christ. The victor over sin and death is the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. But what about the internal struggle that uh, we, as Christians, still have with sin. And we certainly do. We struggle with it all of the time, every day. Well, again, God supplies the ability to fight and win in the internal struggle with sin. What I've been describing to you previously is the legal victory that Christ accomplished upon the cross. He pardoned our sin so that we are accepted as righteous, 
based upon the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Another aspect of our salvation in terms of the present life, and that's the moral aspect. Again, the moral war that the religious man is trying to win, he cannot win because of the law. So how do we win it? God dispatches the Holy Spirit who moves into our hearts to help us in the struggle. Theology is the word sanctification or moral renewal affected by the Spirit. Legally, we are saved by the work of Christ, our Redeemer. Morally, the Spirit moves in. It's really the purview of chapter 8, giving you a hint of of what is to come in our study of the book of Romans, chapter 8. The Holy Spirit moves in and helps us in our internal struggle with sin. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. Think about that. The Spirit has moved into our hearts because we've been saved by the power of the resurrected Christ. In the Old Testament, where did God dwell in a localized sense? Temple, Temple of Solomon. The tabernacle, the localized majestic presence of God. Now, He lives in us. The majesty of God living in the people purchased by Christ. I mean, think of all the religions of the world building these majestic temples and edifices and all their beauty and glory, the architecture, the grandeur, the gold and silver and precious stones. That's not where God dwells. God doesn't dwell there. He dwells in the hearts of those purchased by the Son. Residence in you. The hope of glory, Paul would say. So something of the theology of Acts chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to his disciples, uh, and you shall receive power. Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. The certainty of it is declared by the Father. It's all going to happen because of God the Father. Uh, if you have your Old Testament, uh, Isaiah chapter 43. Going to read verses 11 to 13. Uh, the certainty of the great eternal promise of God to his people. Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. Let me stop there. God says of all religion, it cannot save. Only he saves. Well, Phil, that's just your testimony. No, that's the testimony of the written record of the word of the living God. I am the Lord, and there's no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. 
and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. I think Luke is alluding to this text. Uh, Acts 1. I think there's an allusion to this text in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. You are my witnesses. Namely, God has purged His people of all idols. Verse 13, even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So my friend, are you seeking salvation from someone else? Another religion? Human morality? Keeping your own scorecard? You can't deliver yourself. There is only one deliverer. It is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son comes to make atonement. The purchase price is accepted by God the Father. And then the Spirit is dispatched to move into the hearts of His people to begin moral renewal. It's the gospel. It's the grace of God. It's the failure of religion. It is the hope of the Christian the hope of the gospel. Religion is not the answer. God is. O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The cry of our heart, giving everything that God has done to save, judicially and morally is thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. It's a cry of our heart in this text. In our hearts every day. For we deserve none of it. But he provided it, delivered his own based on the sovereign good pleasure of his will. And thank God forever and ever that he did. For we are his. And we are his now and forever, based upon his deliverance. And thanks be to God.